The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, well, um, we've been going through um, the gift of prophecy from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We finished 1 Corinthians 14 a couple weeks ago. Last week we started on the different views of, of the gift of prophecy. And we spent quite a bit of time looking at Wayne Grudem's view. And uh, I should have brought the book with me. His book, uh, New Testament Prophecy, um, yesterday and today or something like that. It actually has had a huge impact on um, people's understanding of the gift of prophecy. And so let me just... um, Let me just review his uh, position real quickly and uh, because we're going to evaluate it and then we're going to talk about uh, what I would consider to be a valid proposal for understanding the gift of prophecy, its nature, and its relevance for today. So, uh, so Grudem has a, a view that, um, if you think about it this way, so you have uh, Old Testament prophet, Okay. And so that's capital P prophet. That Old Testament prophet actually received direct, divine, infallible, authoritative revelation and said, thus says the Lord, and that was um, the revelation of God. And so you have capital P prophet in the Old Testament. As you move to the New Testament, though, Grudem has uh, a different um, understanding of the way prophets and apostles work. So in the New Testament, your capital P prophet would be your capital A apostle, okay? So the apostles are the prophets. They are the New Testament counterpart to Old Testament prophets. So capital A apostles are capital P prophets in the New Testament, Uh, When they speak, they speak direct divine revelation imparted by the Holy Spirit. It is authoritative. It's infallible. And uh, then, in Grudem's view, underneath that, you have small p prophets. Small p prophets are... um, uh, they speak, and um, remember, I, I, I gave you um, Sam Storm's view of how this works. So uh, a message, a revelation comes from God. Then the small p prophet interprets that message and then communicates that message. And so for Grudem, Sam Storms, and others, they would see the gift of, of prophecy, small p prophecy, as as not being infallible, okay? Fallibility comes in where the, when the, the small p prophet interprets uh, or where the small p prophet communicates. So it is not authoritative. Well, it's not infallible. And because it's not infallible, it's not authoritative, all right? Um, and so then uh, if you think of then, so Old Testament, New Testament, and then today, 
Today, Grudem would say there's no more capital P prophets because there's no more capital A apostles, but there are small p prophets, okay? Now, um, he argues that view for, uh, on the basis of a number of things. Um, uh, first of all, First um, Corinthians fourteen twenty nine, prophecies are to be judged. First Peter or First Thessalonians five, uh, don't despise prophetic utterance. Uh, hold, test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Right. So he would say. So his 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 deduction from the fact that prophecies are to be judged is that prophecies were not automatically infallible, all right? Um, In fact, they weren't infallible unless they were spoken by an apostle. Uh, He goes on, he says, um, he makes the point, disobedience to New Testament prophecy is not considered to be sin because New Testament prophecy was not authoritative. And the example that he uses is in Acts 21, where Paul is uh, told by Agabus and then the disciples um, that uh, he's going to be bound and they urge uh, and, and taken to Jerusalem and they urge him not to go. And Paul says, well, I'm, I'm going anyway. And so what Grudem does is he uses that passage to show that prophecy can be um, disobeyed um, because it was not authoritative. Also, then Grudem would say New Testament prophecy, small p prophecy, was not inerrant. And the reason that he argues it was not inerrant is because, for instance, uh, Agabus' prophecy in Acts 21.11 has Paul being bound, handed over um, uh, to the, the, the Gentiles, and it didn't happen exactly that way, at least that we know of, all right? Uh, we don't read anything in the book of Acts of Paul actually being bound and and so forth. And so... Prophecy would be considered uh, communicating a revelation from God, um, but it is uh, not infallible. And so I talked a little bit about how Sam Storms saw this working, giving some examples. All right. So that's uh, sort of a, a review. Now, uh, so Grudem's view is what could be called a partial continuationist. And I say partial because he doesn't believe in capital A apostles anymore, capital P prophets. He doesn't believe in in continuing authoritative, infallible revelation. He believes in the supreme authority of the Bible, the sufficiency of the Bible, so forth, all right? Um, the other view um, of that would be called cessationism looks like this. Uh, <laughs> Capital P prophet, Old Testament, <laughs> New Testament, capital P prophet, <laughs> today, no more prophets, okay? So it's sort of that simple, all right? So the cessationist view does not believe that the prophetic gift is continuing. Uh, Grudem believes that it is, but with all of these qualifiers, all right? So uh, l- let me just make a few observations about Grudem's view, and then I want to make a proposal to you and hope that you would just listen with an open mind. And then hopefully I'll finish quickly enough that we can have questions, all right? Uh, Because then you're going to want to know if you're a prophet, of course. No.
All right, so here's the evaluation of, um, of Grudem's view. And, and, and again, let me just qualify. I appreciate and admire Wayne Grudem as a theologian, as a writer, as a Christian man. Uh, he, is, he is godly. He is sincere. He is, uh, he is a, a, a brother. There's no, there's no doubt about that. By the way, beware of any kind of ministry that looks at people it disagrees with as they can't be brothers, okay? That's just not true, all right? Usually goes under the guise of discernment ministry. We disagree with you. We have a different view than you. You must not be a real brother. Wayne Grudem is a real brother, all right? So first of all, I would say that a a fallible prophecy is is somewhat problematic all right um so grudem's whole thing hangs on whether there's fallible prophecy and i think that when when we read the new testament um we're to test the spirits right we're to see um actually who's true and who's false who's a true prophet, who's a false prophet, who teaches true doctrine, who teaches false doctrine, all right? Um, I think that the idea that somebody could be a recognized prophet, okay, just think of the New Testament era for a minute, New Testament era, a, a prophet, and he gets up and he is speaking erroneously, there's a category for that in the Bible. And it's a false prophet. Okay. So the, the idea of fallible prophecy is, is problematic in, in my mind. Um, when, when Grudem uses Acts 21.11, in fact, if you just go ahead and turn there so you see the, the text that we're referring to, Acts 21.11 So this is Agabus, who we've already seen back in chapter 11 of Acts. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And so what what Grudem does is he takes us and he says, well, that's not exactly what happens. Um, And so therefore, his conclusion is prophecy can be fallible and and what i would what i'd want to say almost immediately is that is uh, it's too rigid of a view of the way prophecy works in other words it's expecting a precision that the prophets didn't always express right um it's <laughs> it's like um when you talk to people and they say something like, um, well, the mustard seed actually is not the smallest seed in the whole world. Jesus said it was, therefore, that's an error. Okay. Well, th- there's a sense where you can sort of just miss the ordinary ways people communicate. Okay, What was Agabus's message is that, is that Paul was 
going to be imprisoned. And, and so to kind of push that and say it lacked the precision and then conclude from that, therefore, it was erroneous, I think is, is the wrong uh, inference. In fact, uh, Tom Schreiner makes the comment, uh, he says, um, well, I'll skip his comment for right now because it's, he just says what I just said. So then what about Acts 21.4, right? So after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. They kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. And so Grudem says again, well, look at that. Um, and uh, the Holy Spirit's giving them a prophetic word. And what is it? It's through the Spirit. What are they telling him? Not to go to Jerusalem. Well, that ends up being problematic, and, and I don't think proves his point, because what are the choices that you have if what he's saying about 21.4 is true? Well, the first would be that Paul was just disobedient to the Spirit. Okay. Or the Spirit was mistaken, and what he told Paul at the end of chapter 20, he's now changed his mind in the beginning of chapter 21. I find both of those options actually implausible, all right? Um, John Stott has a very good um, overview of, of Acts 21 uh, 4, and he says, actually, I have the whole thing printed, but let me just read the last two sentences. He says, perhaps Luke's statement is a condensed way of saying that the warning was divine while the urging was human. After all, the Spirit's word to Paul combined the compulsion to go with a warning of the consequences. In other words, the Spirit compels him to go, but the Spirit also is warning him of what's going to happen. And it is actually the disciples that are doing the urging part of not to go. And that, in a sense, is not part of the prophecy. All right. Um, uh, we talked a little bit about Grudem's view of Ephesians 2.20, that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, or the apostles and the prophets. And of course, for Grudem, what he has to do at that point is he has to say the apostles who are prophets and make them one group because it's clearly not talking about Old Testament prophets. And then you can't have the foundation of the church built on uh, fallible prophecy. I think that that actually ends up being one of his weakest arguments simply because in, in Ephesians 3.5, Paul talks about the mystery being made known now to the apostles and the prophets. And in Paul's list in 1 Corinthians 14, he gives, he gives a hierarchy in the church. First apostles, then prophets, right? So there seems to be a, a clear distinction in Paul's mind between the two offices, all right? Um, Schreiner is, um, is worth um, referring to here. So <clears throat> some people in, when, in their arguing uh, against uh, any kind of cessationist position would say, uh, so, if, so for instance, if you said prophecy in the New Testament was infallible and authoritative, they would say, well, then why isn't it in the canon of Scripture? Okay. So if, if what the prophets are doing is the same as what the Old Testament prophets were doing, why isn't it canonized? Okay. 
Well, not every prophetic utterance under the old covenant was canonized. There's no reason to believe that it wasn't authoritative and it wasn't infallible, but it wasn't canonized. In other words, infallible and authoritative does not automatically mean included in the canon of Scripture. Um, How many recorded um, prophecies of Elijah and Elisha do we have? Well, actually, very, very few, right? It focuses more on their life and their miracles than the content of their prophecy, right? But who would say that they prophesied in a fallible, non-authoritative way, right? doesn't make any sense. Same thing with the prophets in the New Testament. The, the, the reason the New Testament prophets can be foundational to the church um, is because they're giving authoritative divine revelation as well. But there's a sense where um, they're giving what the church needs before the church reaches its stage of maturity in having the canon of the New Testament. So it's not necessary that every prophecy be recorded for us in Scripture in order for it to have been truly prophecy. All right? So I think that the idea of um, uh, Grudem's argument here is answered really well by, um, by Tom Schreiner in his article, all right? Uh, one last thing, and that is in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, Grudem points out, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment, okay? So, here, here's Grudem's takeaway from 1 Corinthians 14, 37. There's a, there's a difference between New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets, okay? Is that, is that actually clear in this text? Yeah, I think that that's absolutely clear, that, um, that the authority of an apostle was higher than the authority of a prophet, Paul's saying, if you're not, if, if you think you're a prophet or you think you're spiritual and you don't recognize me, you're not recognized. Okay, but Grudem's um, deduction from that is that therefore New Testament prophets were fallible. Okay, well, I don't think that that has to be the conclusion from what Paul's saying. I mean, what Paul is saying, is, in a sense, is if you're really a prophet, you're going to recognize my authority as an apostle. Which means if you don't recognize my authority as an apostle, guess what? <laughs> you may well not even be a prophet, okay? In other words, Paul's not simply saying, uh, because I'm an apostle and you have to recognize my authority, he's not, in a sense, saying anything other than prophets needed to be consistent with what the apostles taught, and if they weren't, they were not recognized, all right? So overall, overall, my objection to Grudem's view is that he he has to Uh, minimize the New Testament view of prophecy and the role of the prophet in order to make his view work. And so some of his observations are actually valid, I think, but in a sense, his valid observations, I don't think prove enough for his position. All right. So 
Let's uh, get to a proposed uh, understanding of the gift of prophecy, all right? So number one, I think I have, what, seven or eight points here, right? So number one, prophecy is an act of divine authority, authoritative revelation has ceased, okay? So in that sense, I am uh, a cessationist through and through, um, if some guy gets up on TV and says that God told him that the coronavirus was going to end on, uh, on April 25th, um, I don't believe him. Okay. I don't know if Charlie was in Portland um, at this time, but uh, we overlapped in seminary some. And um, there was a... Uh, I think he was a Korean fella up in Portland that was sort of a self-styled prophet. And he had prophesied, made a prophecy that Portland was going to be destroyed by an earthquake on May 5th. Okay. Which was a total bummer to me because that was the day of our graduation. So I thought, man, all that work for nothing. And, um, and of course, May 5th came and went. So, biblical standards would make you conclude that that man is not a prophet, but that that man is a false prophet. Okay? This, this gift of God giving uh, revelation. Now, understand this. Can God, um, can God reveal things to you from his word? Uh, yeah, absolutely. In that sense, revelation continues. But you, we usually use a more restricted word for that. We usually call it illumination. Okay, but I mean, Paul says, you know, may God um, give you a revelation and open the eyes of your heart. Right. So there's a sense where God is revealing. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, right? If, if, if God's not revealing things today, then nobody's ever going to be saved. You actually need to have Christ revealed to your heart and to your mind if you're to believe in him. So in that sense, the spirit is continuing to open the word, reveal uh, himself through the word, reveal Christ through the word, illuminate our understanding, right? And all of that is, is right and true. The, the question is not whether God does that, but the question is whether or not God says, uh, here, Joseph Smith, put on these special glasses and read the golden tablets. I have more books to give you. Okay. Does that continue? And the answer is no. Continuing authoritative, infallible revelation is not true. When God, by the way, there's a reason why the book of the Revelation is the capstone of the New Testament canon. God reveals himself in his son, Hebrews 1, 3, 
And it is that revelation of his son, which the apostles, um, of course, being led by the spirit, or think of the upper room discourse, they speak of Jesus, they, the spirit reveals them to them things, so that the, you have the gospels, which is the revelation of God's son, you have the epistles, which is the interpretation of that revelation of God's son, and then you have the book of Revelation, which is the capstone of the revelation of God's son. So what revelation could God give that went higher than what he's already given in Christ or go beyond what he's already given in Christ? And the answer is none. Christ is the consummation of the revelation of God for this present age. Now, of course, Christ will be revealed at the end of the age and you will know him in a way that you only know him by faith right now. But here's, here's the point, is that God is not continuing to say, hey, Jeff, I've got some really, you thought Ephesians 6 was great? I'm about to show you what Ephesians 7 was, says. Okay. Canon's closed. Divine revelation in that sense has ceased. Now, by the way, Grudem would agree with that. Okay, So this is not... Um, this is uh, not Grudem's issue at all. There's a sense where this is an issue for what we identified as full continuationists, all right? The second observation that I would, that I would bring is this, is that the apostles did, in fact, have a higher rank than prophets, but that does not imply that they, the prophets, could be fallible, all right? So just because there's a higher rank in the church doesn't mean that the prophet spoke fallibly. Number three, Grudem's view and practice of prophecy, and this is going to be a change to your notes. Grudem's view and practice of prophecy is not completely incorrect. I think I said necessarily in your notes, I changed to completely incorrect. So follow me on this because this is where you might I don't want you to get lost at this point, all right? So Grudem's view and practice of what he calls prophecy is not completely incorrect. It just probably shouldn't be called prophecy, all right? And we'll talk about that in just, in, in just a minute. So all that to say is if you listen to... Um, the anecdotes, for instance, um, in his revised uh, version of New Testament prophecy, he has an appendix where he's got a whole list of, of basically reformers and, and reformed people who have had, in a sense, pretty remarkable um, experiences. He starts with John Knox. Um, Knox gave what was considered to be something that was prophetic, um, a number of the Scottish Reformed, uh, uh, George Gillespie, Samuel Rutherford, uh, even Spurgeon. I mentioned a couple of the Spurgeon stories last week where there are these like supernatural things. And what Grudem does is he says, here's an example of prophecy. And I look at that and I say, I don't doubt that those things happened. But I wouldn't call them Prophecy. Um, Grudem gives anecdotes from his own life. And um, I listen, and, and most of those, I think to myself, I think that can happen. 
But I don't think that that's what the New Testament means by prophecy, all right? Now, you've got to track with these steps because they all build on each other. The next one is this. It does seem that there were two levels of prophecy in the New Testament. Okay. Look at 1 Corinthians 14. First Corinthians 14 and verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. Now, um, I've thought more about this passage this time around than I have before. Think about the scene that Paul's presenting. Um, let's say you've got Fred and George and Charlie, and they're, they're prophets, okay? And, and uh, Fred is up given a prophecy, okay? Whatever, whatever we're calling a prophecy. And um, does this sound pretty exciting, Fred? <laughs> so there's Fred, and it's a word of exhortation, consolation, like you see earlier in chapter 14. But then George is sitting there, and in these words, gets a revelation. What does Fred have to do? Sit down. Does that not imply that there are at least two levels of something going on? Okay. So nobody ever said, Isaiah, take a seat. Ezekiel, take a seat. All right. So you could have a prophet who is doing what's called prophesying. And yet another prophet who receives a revelation, and what that does is that somehow trumps what the first one is doing. And the way that I think that makes sense is if there's two different levels going on, right? So let's say that, uh, that Fred's message was just a message of, of comfort and consolation to the congregation, to trust God, to trust his promises, and... Um, He's doing it in the power of the Spirit, and then the revelation comes. It just seems to be like it's a higher version of what's going on, all right? Now, <clears throat> what's interesting is that um, Ian Duguid, who's an Old Testament scholar from Westminster, he actually argues that we should understand the Old Testament as having two different levels of prophecy. He goes through, he does actually a really, really fine job. Um, he shows that there were obvious people that um, were uh, in the prophetic office. Just think of your major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Um, but you also had other people that were prophets that may have only prophesied once or twice. And what they said was not recorded. But the only reason that it was said that they, were, that they prophesied 
was as a demonstration of them being given the Holy Spirit, at least temporarily. So Moses, is Moses a prophet? Absolutely. By the way, Moses is the prophet of the Old Testament. All other prophets actually derive from Moses' revelation. Um, Your latter prophets, actually, what are they doing? Their prophesying, their their prophetic ministry is wholly uh, within the context of of the covenant, which Moses was the, the headwater for, all right? So here's Moses. He's the prophet. How do we also know he's the prophet? Because in Deuteronomy 18, there was promised another prophet who would be like Moses. And who fulfills that? Jesus. Yeah. Okay. So if Jesus is the fulfillment of who you were as a prophet, guess what? That, that makes Moses pretty, pretty high up on the totem pole. All right. So Moses is a prophet. And, um, and he has the 70 elders there in Numbers uh, 11. And the Spirit comes and they all prophesy. But the text says they only did it once. So are they prophets in the same way that Moses was a prophet? And the answer is no. Samuel, is Samuel, by the way, Samuel is next to Moses, the next important prophet in terms of redemptive history. Okay? He is, um, there's actually a lack of, of uh, prophetic ministry for a period of time, Samuel ends up being raised up, and you see this in Acts chapter 3. It's Samuel and the prophets, okay? Samuel is absolutely significant as a prophet, um, and so people go to him as a, as a seer. People go to him. He speaks the word of the Lord, right? But guess who else prophesies? Saul. In fact, twice. Second time, it's a little weird because he doesn't have any clothes on, but we won't go into those exegetical details. Um, Is Saul a prophet in the same way Samuel's a prophet? Not at all. Saul just prophesied. All right. So, So Duguid goes through and he makes some very good observations. You even have... People in like First Chronicles twenty nine, where you have people that are uh, priests that are involved in the singing of God's praise in the temple, that are identified as prophets. Okay. So, so he makes the argument that there's two different kinds of levels there. In fact, um, if I can find the way that he puts it. So he says, um, so then talking about the New Testament, he says, in sum, if we allow the New Testament to reflect the diversity of prophetic phenomenon present in the Old Testament, then the pressure to try to make all prophecy in the New Testament, either capital P prophecy or small p prophecy, is lifted, allowing a fairer evaluation of its manifold forms. So I want to grant that for a minute... Um, there are, let's say, two different levels that existed. 
okay? Now, that brings me to the next point, and that is the Old and New Testament connection on the Holy Spirit and prophecy, all right? So uh, go ahead and turn over to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers is way more exciting than you think. Don't raise your hand, but I hope you don't skip numbers when you're reading through your Bible in the year, (laughs) okay? I know the genealogies get a little long, okay? So 1126, notice this. But two men had remained in the camps. This is after the elders had prophesied, and uh, they did not do it again. But two men remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now, they were among those who had been registered but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and me, Dad, are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. By the way, this passage should sound very familiar to you because it's echoed again in the New Testament. Instead of Joshua, it's the sons of thunder, okay, saying, Jesus, hey, there's somebody who's prophesying in your name over there. Should we call down fire out of heaven to burn him up? He was not against me is for me right so here's a here's the way moses says it and this is so this is really important but moses said to him are you jealous for my sake would that all the lord's people were prophets that the lord would put his spirit upon them all right so moses no don't don't you dare stop them Why? Because you know what? I wish all of God's people were prophets. What is Moses actually saying? That he wishes all of God's people were Isaiah's, Jeremiah's, and Ezekiel's? No. What what he's saying is explained in the second part of the verse. I wish all of God's people had the Spirit. That's the point. So so prophesying was a demonstration, in a sense, of the Spirit coming on. So for, for Moses, it's like, are you kidding me? I wish all of God's people, understand this, under the Old Covenant, first of all, did everybody in the Old Covenant have the Holy Spirit? No. Actually, was everybody in the Old Covenant saved? The answer is No. Did everybody in the Old Covenant have God's law written on their heart? No. There were a lot of people who were in Israel who were not Israel. Okay? So Moses just simply said, I wish wish they all had a circumcised heart. I wish they all had circumcised ears. I wish they all had the Spirit. I wish they were all prophets. All right? So that's Moses, in a sense, Moses' desire that all of God's people would have the Spirit. Now, Joel prophesies in Joel 2, 28 and 29, that in the latter days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, says the Lord, 
and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will see visions. Your young men will dream dreams, right? And then that passage is quoted on the day of Pentecost. Now, Joel's prophecy is basically saying that one of these days, Moses' desire that all of God's people would have the Spirit is going to come true. Okay. By the way, sons, daughters, old men, young men, maidservants, so, so forth, that is basically the idea of what, what you, you could call the democratization of the Spirit. In other words, everybody in the covenant community is going to get the Spirit without distinction. Men, women, bond, free, old, young, without distinction, they will all receive the Spirit. So on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit's poured out, what, what, is, uh, what are they saying in tongues, by the way? They're declaring the mighty deeds of of God. So they're not only speaking in tongues, but in a sense, they're also prophesying. And guess what? The people that are there understand what's being said in their own language, and many are converted on that day. And so what you have in the new covenant is the democratization or universalization of the spirit. Okay. So Track with me here for a second. What's one of the precious doctrines that was recovered at the Reformation that is a reflection of all the equality of all God's people? Priesthood of believers. Priesthood of all believers. Do you know what the priesthood of believers means? It means that if Jesus Christ is your mediator, you don't need a human mediator. You don't need a human priest to stand between you and God. Okay? Priesthood of all believers. You have access to God. Right? What are the three messianic offices? Prophet, priest, king. You've heard of the priesthood of all believers. Have you ever heard of the prophethood of all believers? No, because it's not nearly as famous as the priesthood of all believers. Um, John Owen, who, by the way, was a full cessationist, said, we are priests as we are Christians or partakers of a holy unction, whereby we are anointed to the participation of all of Christ's glorious offices. So Owen says, priesthood of believer, Kingship of believer, prophethood of believer. So being in Christ, you partake of his holy offices. Now, if priesthood of believer means that you don't need a human mediator between you and God, you have access to God, you're in a sense, if Jesus is your priest, then you are a priest in him and have access to God. Guess what this means actually for the idea of of being a prophet? You ever wonder about this passage in 1 John 2? 
Little children, you don't have any need for anyone to teach you anything. For you have an anointing that comes from God. You've read that, right? Is John getting rid of the need for Christian teachers? The answer is no, because he's teaching them by writing this epistle. <laughs> okay. What is he saying? What is the anointing of God? It's the Holy Spirit. If you have the anointing of God, then you have, this is the important part, you have immediate knowledge of God. By immediate, I mean not mediated. Okay? So for, uh, for Heiko to know God, he doesn't need me to be his pastor. What he needs is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives him an anointing and an understanding of the truth. Okay? As a child of God, who is actually qualified to speak the word of God? All of us. All of us. If, if after Bible study, Vic came up to me and said, hey, I, I want to just, I want to share this, uh, this word with you. It was really encouraging to me. I'm not going to say, look, I've been to seminary. I'm ordained. I don't need you to tell me the word of God. I'm going to receive it. Why? Because it's the word of God and it comes from somebody that has the same spirit that I do. So there's this democratization of the spirit and that spirit actually empowers you not only to be a priest before God, but actually to be able to speak the word of God. Okay. So there's a sense in which this... um, this idea of, of, of knowing God, knowing his word, we can speak the word of God to each other. You don't need a special office. You don't need to know Latin. You don't need to wear a robe. You don't need to have beads. All you need is the Holy Spirit and the word of God. Okay? So I would just say that on this point, cessationists actually need to be cautious because having the spirit and the democratization of the spirit, that means that we can all speak the word of God to each other. Okay. Now, number six. I hope that this flow is making sense to you. Number six, we should confirm, and notice I have in quotes, the supernatural work of the spirit in a cessationist framework. That, by the way, is Vern Poitras' title of an article that he wrote 20-something years ago, 23 years ago. Um, So what I mean by that is if we're cessationists believing that there are certain gifts of the Spirit that have ceased, we have to make sure that, that we also affirm the continuing supernatural work of the Spirit. Cessationism does not mean anti-supernaturalism. To say that there are no more apostles, capital A apostles and capital P prophets today, is not to say that the Holy Spirit does not work supernaturally. Um, There's, I have a number of examples here, but let me just, um, 
So you're sitting down with somebody. Let, let's say somebody has come to you and they say, uh, say to you, uh, I, really, I really need help. I've got a, I've got a really uh, serious issue in my life and um, I feel trapped and I need, I need help. And you sit down and you're listening to them and you're praying. You're asking the Lord for what? You're asking the Lord for wisdom. You're asking the Lord to share the right passage. You're asking the Lord for help. And let's say the Lord actually answers your prayer. And you say something that you weren't planning on saying, but it came to mind and you said it, and it was unbelievably helpful to that person. Has that ever happened to you? It, it it should <laughs> this should be this should be a relatively normal occurrence of actually saying something that's helpful to somebody on the basis of the word of god that the spirit of god helps you with all right there have been times there have been times in in both preaching and counseling where um by the way in preaching you have to understand i don't i don't prepare a manuscript so i don't know ex- ex- the exact words that are going to come out of my mouth only God knows the exact words that are going to come out of my mouth. Uh, I have an outline, and sometimes those words are are probably just dumb. Okay, especially when I see Ariel sitting over here going, "Oh no, 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 no!" I know that was probably yeah, probably shouldn't have said that. Are there times where there is a sense of God's help of saying something? that is unplanned, that is spontaneous, and you could say legitimately, the Spirit of God prompted me to say that. But do you believe that happens? And I, I, I want to say, you should believe that that happens. And you should hope that it happens. And that you should hope that it happens to you, both as a giver and as a receiver, Right? If if somebody comes to you and all you have is stuff that you've already, uh, you know, already have up in your noggin, you know, hey, your noggin is great and God can pull wisdom out. But how many times have you absolutely forgot something and then on the spot remembered something? Was that just because your synapses were firing correctly or was that something else? Right. So. Um. I would say that we should affirm a supernatural work of the Spirit within a cessationist framework, which which, what that means then, moving on to number seven, is when that happens, I don't call it prophecy. I don't say, oh, you know what? Heiko asked me a question today. The Lord actually just helped me answer answer him in a way that was really helpful. I always knew I was a prophet. I think that whether whether you want to call it impressions or whether you, whatever you want to call it, spirit leading us, I don't think that you call it prophecy. Okay? You affirm it, but here's here's here would be one of my my pleas, and that is that we need to be guarded in the way that we talk about these things. We should be careful when we're talking about these things. I think that not only is it misnaming 
what we're talking about to call it prophecy. I think it's also misleading to call it prophecy and could even be dangerous calling it prophecy. There was a lady that I used to talk to a lot and she'd come in for counsel and and from, from stem to stern, she would say, well, the Lord told me, 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 the Lord told me. At the first three or four times, I just let it go, right? Why? It's just judgment of charity. Most people, when they say the Lord told me, don't actually meant, uh, you know, I fell down and had a vision and God said, you know, in an audible voice. It's, it, 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 I think most of the time you give people a judgment of charity. Uh, it's just sort of a sloppy way of saying that I, I, I learned something in scripture or, you know. But there are other people that really do think God told me this, God told me that. And at one point I finally just said, so what? What exactly do you mean when you say, God told me? Now, sure enough, all she meant was, you know, I was reading my Bible today and I saw, you know, God is your refuge and strength, (laughs) a very present help in time of trouble, and God told me that, you know. Um, But that's not what everybody means. So we need to be careful with the language that we use, right? Um, we have a family situation. I was praying about it, driving home the other night, and I knew I was going to have a phone call, and and I was praying, Lord, help me, help me. And um, by the time I got home, I had solidified in my mind what I thought needed to be said to this person. And I told Ariel, I said, I, I think the Lord actually helped me with what we need to say to him. Okay? Totally believe that's true. I'm not going to come home and say, God told me what to say. Because when I hear God told me, or God said, that's infallible. Right? God always speaks that way, infallibly. So, I would be uh, what could be called a nuanced cessationist or a soft cessationist. Um, and that's the gift of prophecy. Next week, I think we'll be able to do it in one session. We'll talk about the uh, the gift of tongues. All right. So, any questions um, for clarification or um, identification or repentance or <laughs> Nathan? Yeah. I mean, in a sense, before the canon's completed, you can't really talk about something that's extra scriptural. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I would understand what was happening in the Corinthian assembly to be a mixed bag. One genuine prophecy actually taking place, which would have been uh, revelation from God, as Paul describes it in a few places in 1 Corinthians 14. I think that there would have been um, exhortation, consolation, and so forth, which would have also been identified as prophecy. And then I think you had a bunch of people that were just showing off and actually weren't saying anything that was prophetic, but they claimed to be prophets. So I think it was probably a mixed bag. So...
It's a good question. Anything else? Oh, well, see, I am a prophet. (laughs) All right. Well, very good. Next week we'll get to, to me, it's a little trickier, Lily. Yes, there is a lot of latitude given to so-called prophets today. And uh, in a sense, they sort of preempt criticism by saying, we are wrong sometimes. Okay. So, And then, of course, they, they make a prophecy, they say something, and then it doesn't come to pass. And, and there's never any, like, correction on page four, right? It, they just move on. So, Bertie. No, they really think that they're speaking for God, especially ones that actually just call themselves prophets. Um, it's very, very, I mean, it's common in the States, but it's super common in, in, in Africa. You have prophet so-and-so, prophet so-and-so. Um, one, uh, I'll make this fast. We think of the charismatic movement as starting in the 1960s. In the 1830s, there was a pastor in London by the name of Edward Irving. And uh, Arnold Dalimore has written a wonderful biography on Irving. Irving got caught up in um, what would have been a charismatic movement. The the notion of a pre-tribulational rapture was actually spoken in one of these prophecy meetings by a Scottish girl named Maggie MacDonald. Irving became enamored with prophecy. And then, uh, as time went on, Terrible things happened. He was, he and his wife had a child. The child got very sick. People prophesied the child would get better. The child died. Uh, he became very disillusioned. But because they identified prophets in the church, the prophets were the ones that ended up taking over the church because they were the ones that God was speaking to. Right. So you can see that it is very problematic. In fact, very interestingly, in the Sam Storms book that I cited last week, he makes it a very clear point on one of the cautions is do not promote prophets in the church to places of leadership unless they are actually qualified for leadership. Sort of an interesting caveat, right? So anyway, all right. Well, thanks for your attention. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and Lord, I pray that that, uh, anything that I've said that's been uh, wrong would just be just taken out of our minds, and pray, Lord, that we would always stand firmly on your word. There's nothing like it. It is the supreme authority for faith and practice. It is the final revelation, 
And Father, we pray that, uh, Lord, in whatever ways we work these challenging issues out, we do pray that you would help us to be steadfast and strong in the uh, faith once for all delivered to the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.